Before we do, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, would you teach us your word this morning? Teach us not just head knowledge, but heart knowledge. How to apply your word into our lives, into this world. That you left us to be in. To be the salt, to be the light, to be the gospel bearers, the image bearers of you. In a world that is far away from you. Lord God, teach us how to sustain better as we go through suffering, as we go through just the things that we go through living life in this world. Allow your word to strengthen us, perhaps where we have faltered. Allow your word to perhaps allow us to take that step of faith, Lord God, and get out of the bolt. Because your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So would you use your sword on us this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 to 12. For I, Lord, do not change. Therefore you, old children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will, be, will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight says the Lord of hosts. In almost every workplace, in any organization, and even families, really, wherever there's a group of people that have gathered together for a period of time, there develops, it seems, certain subjects, certain ideas or topics that everyone knows shouldn't be talked about, let alone brought up potentially when conversations go that way, they're steered clear of it. And when that topic's brought up by somebody, there's like a collective. <gasps> and this happens for various reasons. Perhaps they're just too embarrassing to talk about. Hey, Dad, do you remember when you got thrown in jail? Or we know that they're going to cause deep opinions and passions within people to come out. Or they just cause stress and, stress and conflict when they're brought up. And unfortunately, the church is not immune to this. To this fact of human nature, since if you haven't noticed, after all, the church is made up of people. And therefore, over time, all churches develop a habit of those 
taboo subjects that are not brought up. Those subjects that should never be brought up, people think, or if they do, there's that whole, let's not talk about the big white elephant in the room. And everybody knows what this list is, from the preacher who preaches to the congregation as a whole, knows these topics that are off limits. So with saying that, will anybody be brave enough to talk about what Kilden Baptist Church's list is? No, because you would break the protocol, right? By bringing it up. I bet you you all had the thoughts that went through your mind. Well, in August 2019, in a posting on the Christian website Crosswalk.com, gave the following as the top ten topics. They say, and I'm going to pick on pastors, but we as pastors have a hard time preaching to congregations about in North America. These are considered too taboo in church to talk about them. Sin. We don't like talking about sin. Not sin in the general sense, but specific sins that we have bought into in North America, in the church. Second thing, we don't like to talk about God's wrath. We certainly love to talk about the love of God, but we never like to talk about how God feels towards sin. Read Isaiah 53, find out a little bit what the son endured about God's wrath when he hung on the cross. Thirdly, and even more controversially in 2020, human sexuality and gender. What is a man? What is a female? What is marriage? What is not marriage? What is right? What is wrong? Is there order in creation and so forth? Four, this hits way too close to home for me. Gluttony. Over excess, overindulgence. Number five, giving. Six, abuse. From physical to sexual to mental to spiritual abuse. Anybody know what that word means? Theodicy. I bet you we all have struggled with it. How can a good God allow so much evil? It's a theological term. We don't like talking about that because that's a topic that we all have thought about, but it's one of those subjects we never ask questions about in church. Number eight, modesty. Not just with ladies, but with men as well. Not just when it comes to attire and and visual appearance, but it comes down to, look at me, either physically or on social media. What is proper, what is appropriate, and what is right? How about lust? Pornography? What is a healthy sexual relationship? What is not What sort of movie shall we watch, shouldn't watch? What kind of books should we read? And things like that. And finally, we don't like to talk about worldliness. Certainly, we love to talk about we're the salt and light, and we're called to go into the world and spread the gospel, but we kind of get nervous when we start talking about how much the world has infiltrated us 
in our lifestyle, both individually, but how much of the world has came into the church in how we do things? I see this morning that one part of the world is that usually when there's an event on, people rush to the very front row. Why are you guys all sitting halfway back? Try these rolls. They're fine. My spit doesn't usually go that far. Well, today I'm going to perhaps break the cold and talk about one of these subjects. Actually, we're going to begin a sermon series, but a short one, on giving, on tithing, on offering. Now, I hope that I brought that up. doesn't freak you out. Oh, he's going to talk about money. I'm out of here. Since, I'll be honest, contrary to the unwritten rules of the church or organizations and things like that, I would hope that the church is above all one of the places where we can talk about giving and of the other nine things on the list. Or any list. Because God's word talks about giving. God's words talks about those ten things. God's words talks a lot about the unwritten things that we're not supposed to talk about. And therefore, why not talk about money? Now, what is fueling the pastor's talk of money? Nothing, really. Except over the last year, I realize I've been your pastor now over eight years. How many sermons do you think the pastor has spoken about money or tithing or giving in this church in his duration? I've been a pastor, preacher for about 14 years now. How many sermons do you think I've delivered on money? Maybe half of one, maybe. I've been a, a Christian for 30 years. How many sermons do you think I've heard about giving and money in the church in 30 years? I could probably count them on this hand. I wish I had missing a couple fingers because that's probably how many sermons I've heard in 30 years. On money, giving, finances. We ought to talk about these things openly and freely. Why? Do you know Jesus talked about money quite a bit? And how to handle our finances and things like that? Here are some widely quoted statistics about how often Jesus spoke and talked about money. Jesus talked about money more than he did heaven and hell combined. Jesus talked about money except for the kingdom of God the most. 11 of 39 parables that Jesus used to teach were about money, stewardship, and giving. In the Gospel of Luke alone, one out of every seven verses deals with the topics around money, if not money itself. So if Jesus spoke about money, then why shouldn't we, his church, And then furthermore, any thought that God doesn't care about how we spend our money, how we handle our money, what we do with our money, how we give our money, it's destroyed totally. When we look at passages, there's many of them in the scripture in total, like Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 to 12, the one we're looking at this morning. Because it clearly talks about money, specifically giving. And the hard attitude that goes behind those who give. 
and those who don't, quite frankly. In this passage, God tells his people Israel, during the time of prophet, the prophet Malachi, again, a prophet was somebody God would raise up to speak on behalf of him to his people. In other words, God would use them as a conduit to speak to his people. He uses Malachi here, and look at the middle of verse 10, tells Malachi to tell the people to test me. Test me, I'm God, test me. Test God how, though, specifically? Through the giving of the whole tithe. Tithe being literally 10% of what the Israelites would produce in a year, from what they grew in the fields, to the livestock that they produced, to the money that they made. Now, Malachi is the end of the Old Testament. This is something not new. This was something they were required to do as the, from the law that God laid out. One such is Leviticus chapter 27 and verse 30. Every tithe of the land, every 10% of the land, whether of the seed or of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. We should also note that the reason why God called his people to test him through the giving of their tithe through the prophet Malachi is, look at the rest of verse 10, is so he could bless them. So he could show them even more clearly that he was their God. Now, for a moment, a little backstory on the prophet Malachi and the times that he lived in. He was God's prophet. And again, Malachi is the last Old Testament book. And the new, then the Gospels. Any idea uh, in the Gospels, John, or sorry, I should say after Malachi came, the next prophet would be John the Baptist who came to prepare the way of the Lord. Any idea how much space there was between Malachi and John the Baptist? About 400 years. After the prophet Malachi, God was silent to his people for almost 400 years until the time of Jesus. Furthermore, Malachi was called by God to be his prophet about 100 years after the Israelites came back from captivity. They were taken in captivity because of sin, of not doing their job in the promised land, and they are eventually exiled. But then the exile was only for a time, and they came back to Jerusalem. They came back and they rebuilt Jerusalem, they rebuilt the temple. And sadly, though, as often happens, even though God's people had returned, they came back to where they once lived. They rebuilt things. They rebuilt the temple. Things were never quite the same again. Things were never to the same grandeur as they once were. From the temple that wasn't as great as the original one to the Jerusalem herself to the people of God. They never rose up to the same passion that they once had. They actually never rose up past the passion they had that took them into exile. Certainly there was like one or two and various degrees of people rising up for in general though the people of God lacked passion. For God and his ways as they were once called to do. As they once did before they were taken exile. And actually, if you want to, if you've ever read Malachi or read it even this afternoon, you quickly come to understand that the majority of people at Malachi's time, even the priests 
in the temple, for lack of a better word, for just giving lip service to their faith. Just giving lip service about being a Jew. Just giving lip service about being one of God's people. About God and his ways. They're going about being God's people kind of half-heartedly. Knowing how they should do or what they should do, but never doing it. Having their heart the whole time. Far removed from anything deep or real about the relationship with the living God. Not really believing in God, not really taking God at his word. Therefore, if God directed them to do something, they would interpret it their own way. Another part of Malachi, one of the laws required that you take your best animal to the temple to sacrifice. Your best. Farmers who produced animals here, that, that's quite a bit of money. What they end up doing during Malachi's day, instead of going to their herd and look for their best animal, they look for the one that was least likely to make any money, the one that had the defect, the one that was deformed, and they brought that animal and sacrificed it at the altar. And it was this attitude and the lazy practice that went along with it. It's why God raised up this prophet anyways. Why he raised up Malachi in order to speak through him to the people about their cold hearts that produced their cold religion. The outward expression of their faith that was lacking. Because again, if you heard me preach this before, how we live our lives really indicates how much we believe in our hearts about God and the things of God. And in the book of Malachi, one such practice that God calls his people into account over was their lack of giving. Of their proper tithe, their 10% to God. 10% of the temple. Why? In order to help maintain it. In order to kind of keep the doors open, to take care of the Levites, the priests, who God appointed over the temple for the sake of the people. And this hopefully doesn't shock you, just as funds today that we just took help keep the lights on here in this building. Helps pay for my wage. Helps put water in the cups that your kids drink out of. Keeps the building warm. Hopefully, again, that didn't shock you. How else do you think churches stay open? We don't get government grants. We don't get government subsidies. Except for the GST and the other tax breaks we get as a charitable organization. But the church is paid for by what we collect. But here in Malachi, God doesn't soften his words about the people's lack of giving. He says that they were robbing him. In verse, chapter 3, verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. And the people say, but you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. It's because of this bold statement that then God issues the bolder challenge that he does. He calls his people to test him. Not to give up, not to cut back. But give what you're required to give. Now why would he do that? He was trying to wake them up. 
He's trying to wake their hearts up to stop pretending at religion, stop giving lip service to him that was producing half-hearted practices because their hearts were cold. He was trying to get their hearts on fire again. Now, God was doing this. He was giving them this challenge, not because he needed to prove himself. He didn't need to have himself proven true. But he was doing this to test the people about their faith so they would understand the level of their faith. Because I hope we understand that any test of God is really a test of the people who say they believe in him. Why? Because God always remains true to who he is. He always remains faithful. He always fulfills his part of the bargain. That's why really the question always comes down, not as if we believe in God, but will we take God at his word? This is why, look at the verse 6 and 7 as he opens this passage. He opens up to telling the prophet to say, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, old children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statues and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Those first lines, or the first words of that line, for I, the Lord, do not change, is profound. It's a mighty declaration of God that ought to cause his people back then and us here today to shudder, to shake, and to tremble, quite frankly. Especially considering what the remainder of verse 7 says about how God's people back then have turned aside from him and his law. Therefore, because they did not fulfill the covenant, would he not be completely in his rights to wipe them out? Just like God really would be completely in his rights to wipe out anybody who fails to come and live up to his glory. Yes? No? We would. Wouldn't we? If we were God? Parents, have you ever wanted to wipe your kids off the face of the earth? Oh, please say yes. I know you wouldn't. But that person who cut you off in traffic? That politician? So why would God be any different? Well, he is. Because he's true to what he has said he is true to. He is committed to the people that he says he's committed to, no matter what. So he can say to Israel, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, old children of Jacob, you, old children, Israel, are not consumed because you should be. Because how far you have fallen short of my glory. But I'm faithful. And I will remain faithful to you as I have promised. I am true. I'll remain true to you. Even as you wander. 
That's why you're not consumed. You're not consumed because you practice your religion very well. You're not consumed because you're good people. You're not consumed because I am God. Not only is God faithful, God is merciful. As God is always merciful for those who shouldn't have mercy. Look at the end of verse 7. He calls the people to return to him. These people who have wandered, those people who have pretended their religion. It says, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Not to return to him the way they were acting, not giving lip service to him, not practicing their half-hearted religion from a cold heart, but return to him with a whole heart. Because that's what God really wants all the time, a sincere heart. He doesn't want half-heartedness. He doesn't want a broken heart. He wants a whole heart of devotion for himself. This is why he answers the, their question of, that they give at the end of verse 7. How shall we return? We've known we've screwed up. This is where he answers the accusation about robbing God and giving your full tithe. Now, he gives them the remedy of their thievery. If you're being a robber, you're a thief. How do you remedy being a thief? You give the full tithe. What you're required to do. Now, more importantly, he wants the heart behind it to be whole. And chances are, if the heart's behind it's whole, they're going to follow through on the law that they know is true and do what they are required to do. But again, God is after the heart. Because in the end, do you think God really cares about money? Do you think God really cares about money? He doesn't because it's his already. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In other words, everything is God's. Everything. From your 3,500 square foot house to your 800 square foot house. From your Dodge truck to your John Deere combine. It's his already. He doesn't care about it. He doesn't need it. But he cares about the heart that's behind the money. He cares about the devotion that's behind the giving. Why? Well, going back to the last sermon series, when our hearts are fully committed to him, when we're in a vibrant, real relationship with him, we thrive. No matter what. We gain the benefit of the relationship. That's why God, the call to test God is really the challenge for us is to up our game. To up our trust in Him. Now, if God doesn't care about the money, the fair question is then why money? Why not church attendance? Why not my good religion works? Why not raising good kids or being more good than bad? Why money? Well, money I serves as a precise diagnostics tool, doesn't it? Towards what our heart truly sees as being really important? 
You may think John Deere is really important. That's why you have green paint and don't have red paint. I really love Dodge vehicles. That's why unless somebody gives me a Ford and humbles me, you'll see, probably see a Dodge. It's why I'll buy tickets to a hockey game because I'll see it as really important. Why I'll buy certain clothes because I see it as really important. Why I eat certain foods because I see it as really important. What I see really is important, I put my money behind. In Malachi day, what the people gave and how they gave it truly revealed the people's heart of what they did not see as really important. True faith in Yahweh. Same holds true today. You don't have to answer this, but ponder this over the next weeks. What does your giving to the church, to other Christian organizations, even other things in general, reveal about what you hold as a treasure in your heart? What does it reveal in your heart about your passion for God and the things for God? And let me be bold. Are we robbing God? In what we're giving, in the end, I hope we understand we're robbing ourselves. Robbing ourselves of the blessing that comes from having a closer walk with God. That's an indicator, a desire, the indicator is, is what we give. Look at verses 10, middle to the verse 12. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy. The fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. <clears throat> to be clear. By the way, I have a cold. I'd love to give it away. I don't think it's the virus. It's just a cold. But some people have taken TV televangelists. Some pretty big name speakers will take verses like this and other ones in the Bible and use it to teach false things. It's called the prosperity gospel. It's from the pit of hell. Do not believe that God, the only way that God will bless you if you give money is by giving you more. It's the enemy's temptation for us consumers in North America to get in bondage. That's not what he's saying here through Malachi. We don't give our 10% and get way more money back. But the frailty of preachers sometimes is, hey, I could get a really nice Rolls Royce. I could get my gold corporate jet. And there's people in our fellowship in these churches that have bought into it and sent their money away. All you've done is line somebody else's pockets. Quite frankly, be very careful with who's on TV when you don't come to church, who's on the radio. It's like tempting somebody to buy lottery tickets for the quick fix. 
The thing with lottery tickets, you probably have a better chance of a good return. And I don't even think lottery tickets are right. If we're looking for prosperity, it tells us a lot where our heart already is and where it shouldn't be. See, the blessing that Malachi, or God's talking to Malachi here, that we receive is the best blessing that we can receive. It's a closer relationship with God. The God of the universe and all the benefits that comes out of that sort of relationship. And what does that mean for Israel? That if they took God up on his challenges, if they tested God, they would learn that he is indeed trustworthy. And they would then lean into his faithfulness even more. In other words, they would thrive. They experience God more. And guess what? Then individually and collectively, as a nation and as a people, they would become the beacon of hope that God called them to be in the first place. Why did God call Israel to be his own people? Why did he give them the promised land? So the other nations around them would say, Yahweh's real. So again, as we move closer or deeper into the sermon series on giving, and it's going to be, I suggest to Alec he can continue next week, but he didn't want to. I don't know why. He said, but that would sound like I'm trying to earn my own wage. Yeah, we won't let him preach it, but it's going to be chopped up more than I wanted it to be. But over the next couple of sermons, we're going to talk more about giving. But as we do, I'm going to ask myself this question. I hope we do as well. Again, what does our giving habits indicate about our heart's devotion to him? Are we giving based on his faithfulness? Or are we giving based on our faithfulness? What I think I can give. There's a huge difference. Again, money is a very precise diagnostics tool. Jesus is clear about that. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. He uses that tool to reveal our hearts. Are we going to serve God, or are we going to do what the world says and serve money? So as we ponder, as we ask, as we work through this sermon series, may it reveal not only what our hearts hold as the greatest treasure, but I hope to reveal that Jesus is the greatest treasure. Period. Let's pray. No matter, Lord, how much money I have or do I have in my bank account, that money has never saved me. No matter how much possessions I've gained over my life and living and marriage and things like that, that has never healed me. No matter how fine of the things that I buy and the quality of things that I own, Lord God, they never give me satisfaction because I always want it more and more and more. So over these next couple of weeks, Lord God, teach me and teach us as a church why Jesus is the greatest treasure. 
because he has saved us. He's healed us and he's completely satisfies us. And therefore help redirect my passions, my appetites, and everything towards Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.